0: hello i'm stephen coates this is the bureau of lost culture and this is the story of a man who drilled a hole in his own head in order that he get and stay high forever but before we hear that story i would like to invite you to come join us at the bureau of lost culture go to bureauoflostculture.com you can find all our previous work there and you can sign up to join us for special bureau treats. You can also support us in our wild endeavors if you choose to do so. Joey Mellon was born in 1939 to an upper middle class English family. Like many of those born to such a family, he attended a private school, Eton, and then he attended Oxford University. And then he went to work in his father's Stockbroking firm. But then everything changed. He tuned in, turned on, dropped out, and like many other young people in the 60s, started to live the life of a beatnik of a hippie. But unlike many of the other young people, he did something in 1968 which was to change him and in some ways make him famous or infamous. He carried out an act self trepanation. Trepanation comes from the Greek word trepanon meaning to bore not as in to talk endlessly about oneself but as in the creation of a hole in this case a hole in the skull. It perforated skulls with holes in them have been found all over the world in prehistoric sites up to 8,000 years old. Sometimes the holes were made by scraping away the bone within a flint knife until a piece could be prized out. That sounds painful. Holes might be drilled into a person's skull if they were behaving in what was considered to be an abnormal way to let out what was thought to be evil spirits. The bone that was cut out was sometimes kept by prehistoric people to be worn as a charm to keep such evil spirits away. It's also been speculated that it was performed as some kind of religious symbolic act, an initiation into a priestly or shamanic caste. It was used through the 18th, 19th and even 20th centuries when doctors employed it as a means to treat the insane or the melancholic or even those with just headaches. It was replaced in the 1930s by the procedure known as lobotomy by which a deeper hole was cut in the skull and parts of the brain removed or destroyed on the basis that you'd remove the bits that caused psychotic delusions. In the decades that followed, as psychoactive drugs were developed, lobotomy and trepanation rather fell out of fashion. And it wasn't until the mid-sixties that the practice was revived, this time as a way of expanding consciousness And the main person behind that idea was a Dutchman called Hugo Bart Hugus. We're gonna come back to him a bit later in this story. Now, I'm sure I don't really need to say this, but the Bureau of Lost Culture does not recommend self-trepanation. But now it's time to meet my guest, the man I mentioned at the beginning. Here he is, Joey Mellon. Hello, Joey, welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Pretty good. Well, listen, thank you for coming into the Bureau of Lost Culture. Well, I'm enjoying it. Very good. Well, listen, I've got this thing here in front of me. It says, Joey Mellon is an 81 year old former beatnik. 82. Oh, right, there we go. So, Joey (laughs) Mellon's an 82 year old former beatnik who turned on, tuned in, dropped out, and of course, used an electric drill to make a hole in his skull. But we're going to come back to that. It's quite interesting, isn't it, to be described as a former beatnik? I mean, what is a beatnik? Or what was a beatnik? Well,
1: a beatnik, the beatific vision, of officially, wasn't it? That was the sort of what it stood for. Is that right? Yeah. The beatific vision of the what? The beatific vision... Well, the beatific vision. They were visionary. I mean, Ginsberg was the sort of prototype, and um, Kerouac, and those writers' generation, they coined the phrase. So if one sort of dropped out, I mean, which I did, and started smoking dope,
0: that was the sort of big change. Before you became a former beatnik you were a beatnik but before you were a beatnik you were a kind of pre-beatnik I guess but let us just start at the beginning give us a kind of whistle-stop tour through the early years of of Joe Mellon you know where were you born and when were you born well I was
1: born in Essex in a little farmhouse my father was American and he'd come to Oxford University and uh, and married my mother who was English and settled down and got a job in the city. He really liked riding his horse and that sort of thing. That was his pleasure. And he used to go off to the city every morning, come back and ride his horse. He made lots of money in the city. You know, you get very well paid in that place. God knows what you do, but (laughs) you play with money. I mean, I think that's what they do. Their, Their commodity is money. But my father died when I was 14 while I was at Eton, which was very sad because I adored my father.
0: For anybody who doesn't know, Eton is or was anyway, the kind of it was the sort of creme de la creme of sort of English private school education, Well, most famously recently, a lot of the uh, top top brass of the Current Conservative Party. And well, past, I think they've past, always been, always been predominantly
1: up, yeah. Conservative and produced a lot of Prime Ministers and mm. those sort of things. Mm.
0: It's sort of a, and it, it's kind of synonymous somehow, isn't it, with kind of privilege. Yes, completely. And uh, old money, you know, possibly. And, yes, and,
1: absolutely. Yeah. And um, top people. Mm so-called, in brackets, in British in commerce,
0: you know. So you, you've been packaged off there as a young man that your destiny was being kind of written out for you yes. at an early age. Is that right, why you were sent to Eton? You know, you... Yes,
1: I think my mother was a sort of typical English upper-class girl who sort of knew a lot about gardening and antiques and that sort of thing, and married, made a good marriage and produced her sons and would send them to the best schools. That was a sort of traditional... Way for English upper class ladies to behave. So, so you came, so
0: you came out of Eton, and then was sort of a, your father had died, and you were sort of then expected to kind of, like as it were, take over the family tradition and become a stockbroker. And
1: yes, exactly. I went to Oxford University, you know, first in three years, which was very nice. At Eton, I'd always had a sort of classical education, Latin and Greek, which I. I'm pleased about it because it gives you a great understanding of the meaning of word which I think is the most important thing in life the language to me is the biggest thing in life really I think it's the most wonderful thing our English language and uh, it, it's the most amazing invention of the
0: human being in my opinion. Um, in a way Oxford and Cambridge were the kind of creme de la creme of the yes. kind of university system so that was th- that. was all part of that path wasn't it? Kind yes, of, of, a, of a middle yes. class path Yes, you know to kind of produce the next generation of people oh, who sort were going to Rulers. <laughs> rulers <laughs> yeah
1: Because right. I remember that the map of England in my day in the school was covered large pink areas which were the british empire and you know india and australia and south africa and great blodges of pink everywhere you sort of thought well, we just rule the world and um so that one was brought up in that sort of atmosphere
0: yeah so it was a training system for exactly to, to, yes to, 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 to be the rulers to right? bring
1: up the next lot of colonial rulers mm. you know but that seems so far in the past mm. now, it's extraordinary. that uh, You know, I was at school in the 40s and 50s. That was before the 60s was a sort of enormous watershed, a sort of revolution. It was like a sort of underwater volcano. Hmm. And it changed everything. But before that, the class system and the whole sort of old traditional way of carrying on, ruling the world, <laughs> was sort of deep-rooted in the upper middle class and the upper class of it. i was a product of that system
0: so you went to oxford you studied law you mm. came out of oxford and then you know embarked upon you know what's meant to be the you know the rest of your life basically yes, which was work, you exactly. know working in your father's stockbroker firm yeah. after he'd gone and then well, tell us what
1: as a chartered accountants article clerk was the lowest form of life on earth i should think um you you spend your whole day in some office Ticking ledges, tick that, tick that, tick that, tick that, and it's it's just so boring you can't believe. I had two, six weeks study leave for the final exams, and I was reading a book called In Search of the Miraculous by Uspensky, who was a pupil of Gorgias. I was getting more and more interested in book, and I kept saying, oh, I'll just wait till tomorrow to do the accountancy exam revision. And then, then tomorrow, and then tomorrow, and then finally I said to myself, no, look, come on, I don't want to go into the city, I don't want to qualify as an accountant, I don't want affluence, I want the miraculous. So i better chuck it and just leave. And I hadn't got any money, but it didn't matter because I just felt I've got to go and find out what life's all about. It's not as simple as this, you know. You go to Eton, you go to Oxford. You go into the city, plodding up and down every day in the train to the, your office. It's just too boring for words. So I decided to just drop out. This was 1963, perhaps or something.
0: Like that. You'd read the Uspensky book, and mm-hmm. were you were you sort of aware then, even, that there was sort of something going on? You know, that there was this what we can yes, call it, call I, it the well, counterculture or book. the underground. Or... I
1: mean, I think I'd be I'd read Aldous Axley, quite a bit of Aldous actually, mm-hmm. and. I think I'd probably read The Doors of Perception. So I was sort of inclined to that, but, but I hadn't turned on at that time. and But I had a girlfriend. This girl that had always been trying to turn me on to pot, you know. And I thought, well, hell, why don't I try it? And I tried it, and I was listening to Ray Charles, and I thought, well, what on earth have I been doing all this time?
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is crazy. What, what, as in, what have I been missing out on? You what mean? have I been missing out on, right. you know?
1: Um and and to listen to music while stoned was so revolutionary in a sense, you know. Really, you just hear so much more, and it just opened my eyes and my ears and everything. And I just never looked back. Really, that's when I became a beatnik. I suppose you'd say. Right. So you've been had you been living at home up until then? Or? I'd been living in. I had a friend from Oxford who had a flat in London. Had a house, a little house in London, and he let me stay there without paying rent so I'd go back at home at the weekends to um, get my clothes washed (laughs) (laughs) It's traditional traditional young man fashion exactly
0: Um, uh, so you decided to drop out what did your mother think then and your family actually she
1: was shocked how did you explain it I didn't really I just went because I knew there was no point they'd say well why don't you qualify anyway you can always that was the one thing I didn't want to do I didn't want to qualify because I didn't want to have to fall back on that as a means of making money, it, it was too boring. I didn't want to.
0: Right. So you were sort of deliberately, as it were, kind of cutting cut, off, cutting off, yes. cutting the kind of cutting the Plan B, yes, or the uh, the way back behind you by yes. by doing that, right? Yeah. Were you aware, or were you part of, or were you starting to get part of like a kind of London scene? I mean, what was going on? What was? Well,
1: I was part of the sort of typical upper middle class of deb dances and. You know, that sort of life. And then I got into the sort of smoking world, and everything changed, you know. And then I read On the Road. And not long after that, I'd gone to Spain, and I was in Torremolinas, which, uh, believe it or not, in those days was a little fishing village. <laughs> well, the Costa del Sol sort yeah, of Yeah, well, package, exactly. But, but in holidays. those days, just before it really all started, yeah, it was a little fishing village. <laughs> It was extraordinary.
0: And was that part of was that part of the thing that like you know the kind of the people that you were hanging out with in London did so you'd sort of all head off to Spain in the sun and current smoking currensmo- mm. well, them.
1: a friend of who later married someone called Michael Rainey who was they were going to Spain and, and they said I could go with them so I said yes that sounds great idea so I went to Spain I liked to be in a hot country because especially if you're poor I didn't like Cold London. <laughs> I remember once, um, penniless in London, wondering where I hadn't got anywhere to sleep that night, and I found a taxi with the door open, and I got in the taxi and slept in the back of the taxi. In a black cab.
0: In a black cab. Yeah. Wow. I hope the meter wasn't running.
1: No, no, no. It was just parked on the side <laughs> of the road, and I just tried the door as I was walking <laughs> past it. Excellent. <laughs>
0: Very good. So, 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 so you went to Spain. Now, is this the, the trip to Spain where you? Acid for the first time, or, or, or well, I didn't take later.
1: acid then. Um I took uh, mescaline. Mm-hmm. That was that was incredible, and that was what really opened up the whole sky.
0: So one of your friends basically introduced he you to was, mescaline. He uh, was um,
1: an American. He gave me mescaline. It was a big trip, and it was absolutely amazing. And I thought, well, this is really what I've been looking for, because I was looking for. The miraculous, mm. and uh, that what I found it. And I, in
0: Huxley's terms, like that, opened the doors of perception. Yes,
1: it did. It really did. I mean, I Pot opened it first, so that's like halfway up the mountain. But then, Meslin was at the top of the mountain, could really see the view from there. You know. And what was that view like? Milton said in Paradise Lost, There's "An angel flying over," and he says to see from thence distinct each thing on earth. And that's what it felt like. One felt one could see the whole creation and you could sort of understand and identify with it from the smallest to the biggest and it's a
0: panoramic vision. So that totally transformed you, did it? Yes. It transformed your outlook on life? And yes, what- it
1: did, really did. Right. And I realised that that was the sort of key to understanding the whole And I think that I think I found the answer, and the answer was to expand your consciousness to the limit and reach the what Huxley called the antipodes of the mind. I I wanted to travel all around this great universe in the head, because it's extraordinary, isn't it, that one's got this little brain Mm. in the little head, and all one's adventures Mm. are actually taking place in the head. I mean, even if you're physically doing things, it it, the enjo- the mm. consciousness is in your head.
0: What was it like to come back, sort of to come down to the ground, as it were, from the mountain, coming back to London after that experience? Then pretty dreary. Mm. So I wanted to get back as soon as I could. Mm.
1: My friend started a bar, and she was looking for someone to sort of run it. And but just because I'd had the training of accountancy I could, I knew how to sort of. Do the debits and credits you know, of a cash book, sort of elementary stuff. So I, I thought I could do that. I could run the money side of the bar. You thought
0: yeah. your eating education followed by your Oxford education. <laughs> I've been looking for stockbrokers. Kitted <laughs> you work to run a bar in yes. Spain. <laughs> love it. I love
1: it. And it was brilliant, actually, because very exciting time. So there one was um, smoking dope, drinking red wine. I'd heard about LSD on the grapevine. There was talk about it, you know. What was the talk? There's this extraordinary drug, which no one had actually had. I eventually ended up in Ibiza. I was sort of drifting around, and I'd sort of hitch a lift with anybody who would take me anywhere. Then I met Bart Hugis.
0: This is a sidebar about Bart Hugis. Bart Hugus was born on 21st of April, 1934. In 1958, he took LSD for the first time and remained a regular user over the next two or three decades. He became a medical student, possibly to learn more about drugs. He developed many ideas whilst under the influence, including the idea that a piece of apple placed in a vagina was a reliable contraceptive. Don't try that one. He developed his theories about trepanation after reading the theory that human beings brain capacity has diminished since prehistoric times because we've evolved into creatures who walk upright. A combination of gravity and age conspire to rob us grown-ups of the creativity and energy that we possess when children. A baby's skull has the fontanelle, the soft spot, that allows the brain to expand and contract to pulsate by adulthood. Fontanelle has hardened. The brain has no longer elastic. Pulsation decreases. Gravity takes more and more blood from the head. And trepanation, according to Bart, would reverse this loss of blood volume and provide a feeling like one might get from standing on one's head for 10 minutes or from sustained aerobic activity. Against the advice of his concerned friends and unable to find a doctor prepared to drill a hole in his skull. On the 6th of January, 1965, but determined to embark upon an act of self-trepanation. He took LSD acid and put a dentist's drill to his forehead. He managed to drill a small hole, apparently without damaging any brain tissue, and the hole itself healed up in about three days. But he claimed that he'd achieved permanent high that he sought. He even went to a psychiatric institution to share his experiences, but perhaps not surprisingly, Rather than being welcomed with scientific curiosity, attempts were made to make him stay there. Hugues became something of a celebrity. He managed to persuade other people of the validity of his theories. Several people became interested in the idea of trepanation, including, according to Paul McCartney, John Lennon, although most of them did not carry out the act upon themselves. Although he didn't finish his medical studies, Bart went on to work at the Royal Institute for Tropics in Amsterdam and published several books, some still promoting trepanation. He died on the 30th of August 2004 at the age of 70.
1: I was in the old town of Ibiza. I went with a girl, I think, a friend who took me there. There were these two men talking and one of them was actually um, called Frederick. It was a, a group called Nina and Frederick. And think they were Danes or something, they were like sort of Viking, rather good-looking, tall Viking, and his mole, who was also a sort of the tall Viking, and they sang these sort of duets, you know. And Frederick was talking to this guy, and the guy, who was actually Bart, um, I heard him saying, well, now, do you see a future in LSD? And my ears pricked up, and... I then soon got talking to him and it turned out that he had actually made LSD with a friend of his in Amsterdam and he was just going back to Amsterdam to get it so I knew that I'd finally found the Holy
0: Grail so for you guys like that you'd heard about acid mm. it was I mean Huxley had taken it famously hadn't he? And his yes. de- deathbed and, and sort of the rumours were yes. circulating but nobody had actually taken it and then that's right sort of as it were by uh, you know a twist of fate you overhear somebody talking about it and you were I've got to follow this through yes
1: and he came back a couple of weeks later and I was waiting at the ferry (laughs) to meet him and I spotted (laughs) him coming and I said have you got it and he said yes (laughs) you're keen come and get a trip take a trip tonight right so I did and I took this trip found this little flat in the old town of Ibiza and Bart and his girlfriend were there too And, and halfway through the trip there was a window which you could walk, just step out of the window onto the street. And the window opened <laughs> halfway through the street. In stepped Alan Sisko, who was the guy who'd given me the meskin, the year before, you know. That was extraordinary. I said, "Would well, you want to take a trip? And he said, yes. And so he took a trip. but had come with um, a bag of sugar lumps and a lemon. And he squeezed the lemon into a... Bow and he said dip the sugar lumps in the lemon and eat that. It'll help you um keep
0: grounded. I uh, you know, I wanna I, I wanted to dig into this. You know, I've heard about it before. The acids on the on the sugar lump, right? Mm-hmm. You need the sugar. The
1: brain metabolism is the oxidation of glucose. The only energy source for the brain is glucose. You know, there's eighteen billion neurons in your brain. I mean you can't even really get your head around that, so a vast number. When you expand your consciousness, many more are functioning at the conscious level than normal. That means they're consuming huge amounts of, gluca- of glucose. So the sugar level of the blood falls down. And that means that you get various distortions of the functioning of the brain. Visually, you get hallucinations. Um, You can get auditory hallucinations too but the other significant thing is it comes harder and harder to sort of concentrate on words and words are how one is in control of oneself through thinking and so you can't think properly. Well, I like thinking and actually I think thinking is the most enjoyable part of life really. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, even though I enjoy hallucinations they can be quite fun mm-hmm. they're boring after a time mm-hmm. and I much prefer to have that full light beam you know, it's mm-hmm. like upping the wattage in the brain having a really bright light to shine on mm-hmm. whatever you're thinking about
0: than a I've heard this via, because Michael Hollingshead was a big, yes. a big on leading people through trips and also his thing was that you need to eat sweets, because just to take you back for a moment to Bart, so Bart gives you mm. the sugar cube yes. and then the lemon juice which is the citric acid, what's that for?
1: The sugar level is controlled between insulin if it's too much and adrenaline if it's too little, but for the synthesis of adrenaline you need ascorbic acid, vitamin C. So that's why you need to take vitamin C with an acid trip as a safety measure, just so that you'll always have an adrenaline. So your sugar level is not going to fall below the adrenaline level. If you don't take sugar and you let it get down to that level, it can quite often give you horror trip, right? Because right. you get associations
0: with fight, flight, and fright situations. Mm. The appliance of science here, isn't it? I mean, oh he was, yes. He was... Bart
1: was a son and grandson of doctors, and he was a medical student, and he was the top medical student of his year and all the professors had asked him to be their uh, assistant when he qualified and everything and then, because he met some a group of people that he liked and he, he noticed that they were all smoking dope and he looked into it and he saw it's not toxic and he thought, well he'd try it and he really liked it and so he started telling his professors, because he was a medical student they should try it which didn't go down at all well because in those days drugs were, you know, it was a sort of blanket term for mm.
0: badness. Still is.
1: Not mm. quite so much. Mm. <clears throat> Psychedelics are getting almost mainstream now for mm. therapy and things like that. But in those days it was completely taboo.
0: So he's been a bit rushed there advising his professors yes, to, um, to, he was. to try weed.
1: And then he was busted for having weed. So you see, he meta? Titi, who was an African drummer, really nice guy and he used to stand and he said he, he, Bart met him at a party and he was standing on his head for about 20 minutes Bart was puzzled by this and when finally Titi got up he said, why, why are you standing on your head and he said, well because I've got no weed <laughs> if I haven't got any weed I stand on my head and he said, wait a minute I haven't got weed and you stand on your head oh I see yes of course that was the sort of Eureka moment when he realised that's what it was right was putting more blood in the capillaries of the brain. Which
0: which goes on to be his whole theory, which yes. leads lead to the whole trepanation thing. Sort of scientific medical background, hence the whole thing about the sugar and the ascorbic acid. Yes. So when, that first night for you, when, you know, in this flat in Ibiza, mm-hmm. I'm imagining he gave you quite a quite heroic dose, did he, of his home acid? Was in
1: those days, the standard dose was 250 micrograms. And the reason for that was that when Hoffman synthesised LSD in the first place, By accident, he'd absorbed some through his fingers or something and he'd got on a trip and he was in wartime in 1938 or 39 or something and he'd gone on a bicycle back home and he'd really got very wobbly and he'd just... big things had really started happening. And he thought, wow, what the hell was that? So he decided the next day or soon afterwards he would test this substance and see if that could have been what was causing his extraordinary trip. And he took what he thought was the smallest dose he could imagine could possibly have any effect, which was 250 micrograms. Micrograms a millionth of a gram, so it's a very small amount. You can't even see it, it's so small. And he had a massive trip, and he told his colleagues, and they didn't believe him at first, and then they took sort of third of his trip and they all got trips too but anyway the point I'm really making is that 250 micrograms had become the standard trip well actually 250 micrograms is a very big trip massive trip 70 micrograms is enough to give you a good trip so 250 was big and that was in those days the standard dose you know that everybody took you take 200 micrograms of acid so everybody was really freaking out. Mm. So
0: what was that like for you then, that first uh, Well it was great but but you
1: see if you've got the sugar I mean you're enlightened to an extraordinary extent because glucose is synthesised in photosynthesis in plants from the sunlight. So you take it, goes back into your brain and it becomes light again. Mm. It's sunlight in the brain and as the sugar level falls you begin to get distortions Mm. and you get all kinds of weird things happening, which is fine if you're in a nice place and you like it and you, you, you get,
0: it can be very nice. Well it sounds like you were in safe hands with Bart, he knew what he was doing, he knew what he was doing in terms Absolutely. of dosing and what you took with it and stuff. Yes. So And how did that compare with your mescaline experience then, The, the, the Well fact, that it first was the acid. same
1: level, I mean mescaline is a, it's a starry starry night in the desert because it's from a cactus and you get beautiful colours and Whereas, for example, psilocybin is a sort of mauvey, mushroomy, swampy sort of, but they're both high, but they have their particular sort of characteristics. Acid has really no characteristics. Like muscim's got this starry night thing, and mushroom's got the swampy purple thing. Acid is just you. Times, ten. <laughs> times
0: two hundred and fifty in this case. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so how was how was it? it was brilliant and so you'd already kind of dropped out but i suppose these experiences you know the dope then the mescaline then Mm. the acid is just going to deepen your sense of actually dropping out isn't it so you had actually now tuned in hadn't you 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 tuned in you turned on
1: yeah turned on tuned in well i dropped out Mm. turned
0: on and then tuned in. When you came back to London after this, you then became a sort of acid evangelist for a while. Yes. Did, did you bring acid with from Bart? I did, yeah.
1: yes. I brought some of Bart's acid, and I then found, I met my Mike said, well, I told you he met me, and he had a supply, unlimited supply of acid, which was very
0: useful. We've done a couple of programmes about... Uh, Hollingshead. said. So he come back from the States where he turned Leary on and then he yes. opened this World Psychedelic Center and I think mm. Andy Roberts told me that it was all very serious. It was all like guided trips using the Tibetan Book of the Dead and all yes, that. Yes, that's and right, exactly. So you had a very different approach to it, didn't yes. you? So tell us about that.
1: As I say, he used to take in you know, a sort of low light room with slides of mandalas and, you know, sort of banging on about the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So boring. <laughs> I was just saying, here you are, take acid, but remember, take some sugar and take some vitamin C. And so people were just having a really nice time. And he saw that, and he was impressed. And I said, you know, you're missing the point. I mean, you don't have to do this whole thing with mandalas. It it can be very nice if you like it, but I just prefer to have a good time. And all you need is sugar and vitamin C. And so that's when he started having sugar and sweets and things and Mm. advising people to take...
0: C he was quite a mixed character wasn't he he was
1: and the trouble was he used to take smack as well you know he was a funny fellow um, he got busted and went to jail for quite a long time he went and visited him in jail he was very clever highly intelligent basically sex hungry and he was always trying to take advantage of girls by giving them which I don't I don't like that
0: Andy you know, Roberts describes him as a psychopath actually yes yeah, so yeah. I think I think He's, he was. So you'd become a bit of an evangelist because you'd had this very positive experience. So mm. you were actually turning people on yeah. and introducing them to acid. And I guess yes. at the time as well, it was becoming much more part of the culture around you. So what was going on, I mean, in London? You, did you feel then you were part of this thing that was Yes, I to mean, happen? there was
1: a tremendous thing. And, and the music scene was marvellous. You know, the Beatles and the Stones mm. and the, all those groups, you know. The mm. 60s was incredible. I mean, one really felt that we were changing the world. If you were inside that bubble, you know, you
0: felt like you were on the edge of something. Yes, These changes it, were f- going to happen, and we're going to transform everything. It was like
1: everything? a revolution, but a revelation. I mean, mm. it was—it w- it certainly was nothing armed about it. You mm. know? <laughs> but it was a revolution in culture. It was a revolution in—in in the sort of class system. It broke down. You know, before that, it had been very rigid, and. Um, People sort of knew their place and stayed in there. And it, you know it was, it's really hard to imagine now,
0: when I look back. But you were from the upper middle class yes. background. But I mean, you're all mixing up together, right? Yes. Well. I mean, Beatles were working class, right?
1: Yes, exactly. And I think the thing was that teenagers had a bit of money in their pockets, mm. so they could buy records mm. and tune in and mm. get into the swing of this new, exciting, revolutionary situation,
0: evolutionary, really. Bart termed it the evolutionary religion. Before we come back to Bart, I mean, where were you living? How were you surviving? I mean, you know, what were you doing for money? It was always a difficulty.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One muddled through, one way or another. I got a marvellous job in Ibiza. Some Belgian millionaire or something who'd owned property in the Belgian Congo. And he needed someone to do the accounts for him. And I had a girlfriend who said... um, who knew him and worked in his he had a club I said would you like to do this and I said sure so I came and did all these schedules for him and I got 11,000 pesetas, <laughs> which was 66 pounds but I mean that was enough for a summer right you know right. he was
0: survive the summer yeah. yeah so you live in Hunter Mouse basically and just on goodwill and good vibes yes so you'd stayed in contact with Bart mm. and that's quite important in terms of what happens next because you mentioned that, you know, he did this, he'd been making acid, but also he'd had this insight yes. with the guy who stood on his head yes. that, that the whole thing about consciousness expansion and the, the biochemistry of the brain, yes. right? And then he develops this theory about trepanation, about, you know, putting a hole in your yes. head, yes. positive consequences that he believed that would have right yes. so he sort of developed this theory and then as a consequence he had put a hole in his own head yes in a quite scientific way but this this had got an ancient oh very tradition has not it right Vary. the, way it's back the oldest
1: operation in the world I and mean, nobody knows obviously but um, i suspect that it was originally done for axe wounds or something mm. you know where there's a bit of Bone depressed or something, mm. and they've just Ter- yeah. taken it out, and they've felt that they found that people who had the holes in the head had, had seemed to have got some advantage. I mean, it's still done in primitive places. The Kisi tribe in Kenya still does it today. I, well, I don't know if they do, but they did mm. in my lifetime. I've seen yeah. film of it.
0: He rediscovered or come up with the idea that this could make a difference. Then he actually did it himself yes. to himself. Yeah. And um, he started to tell other people about it. And of mm-hmm. course, because you knew him through your asset experiences, mm-hmm. is that you became interested in doing that yourself, yes. right? You? Yeah.
1: I decided that the most important thing in life for me was to expand my consciousness as far as possible, because that's everything. What is life without consciousness? <laughs> I mean,
0: did you feel that there's a limit to the way you could do that through the use of masculine and LSD? Did you, did you feel that that was not sufficient that in a way there needed to be something else beyond that
1: I think the advantage of trepanation is not a huge high, nothing like um, hash or acid if you had a scale of say 0 to a 100 then 0 would be the normal adult state of consciousness so maybe 50 would be a good smoke and a 100 would be an acid trip then trepanation would be sort of 30 But the thing with trip was there's a sort of Parabola. You go mm. up and then you go along the top and then you gradually come down. And the worst bit is always the very last bit when you're coming down to the sort of aches and pains of mm. adult life. Mundane life. Yes, <laughs> mundane life, exactly. And the advantage with trepanation is that you don't have that last bad come down bit. You you stay just above that.
0: No, it's a time to mention your book because you mm. wrote Borehole, you know, in 1970 and it's been republished, obviously, since mm. in an expanded form. But, you know, the byline is this is the story of how I came to drill a hole in my head to get permanently high. Mm. And it's quite a story, Dewey, because you had decided to do this thing and actually yes. it took you three, almost four attempts, didn't it? Really? Yes, it did, yes. And I wanted to just read from the book, I think one of your first attempts... I was living back in London and it was 1967. At that time I was broke and I certainly couldn't afford an electric drill so I bought a hand trepan from a surgical instrument shop. It's a bit like a corkscrew really but with a ring of teeth at the bottom. It has a point in the middle which makes an impression on the skull and then you turn it until the teeth cut into the skull. It's slightly narrow at the bottom than it is at the top so it pulls a circular piece of skull out once you're through with it when you pull it out. It was difficult. It was like trying to uncork a bottle of wine from the inside. That's a very interesting sort of metaphor, isn't it? Or or, yes. or simile, actually. It was like trying to uncork a bottle of wine from the inside. Yes. The tripan was blunt and I couldn't get any someone on my own skull. I was tripping on acid. I thought that it was the only way I could get through doing it, but it didn't work. So not only did you decided to do it, but you also decided to do it on acid. That seems... That was for courage, Dutch courage. Dutch courage, right, yes. okay. I mean, because in a way, from the outside, just from my perspective, as a sort of super anxious type, it's <laughs> a terrifying <laughs> idea.
1: I mean, Well, I, kn- uh, I, was, I was very familiar with acid, and I knew on acid right. I was completely mm. okay. in control of right. myself, and I knew how to do that. And I knew that I didn't have the fear. Right, okay. I, lower down, I had the fear, you know.
0: Right, so you'd recognise that you're frightened, and so for you yes. taking the acid was a way to sort yes. of get through that. But, yes. yeah, yeah. It didn't work out right, no. that first time. And then um, we should mention now Amanda Fielding, who was your friend and yes. then partner for many, many years and yes. mother of your kids. And so she had been Bart's uh, yes. girlfriend, right? Yes.
1: And I'd brought Bart to England from Ibiza, started a campaign of um, trying to get recognition for mm. his discovery. And he'd met Amanda, and who was a friend of mine, and they'd fallen in love. And then he'd been banned from the country.
0: Yeah, it was an undesirable... For his it was an series. undesirable character
1: (laughs) I wonder why (laughs) it's very odd I mean but it has changed I mean Mm. nowadays People are taking psychedelics seriously, but in those days they
0: were just scared stiff of it. It was terrifying for lots of reasons, wasn't it, to society, because it was having an effect on people where they were dropping out. So, you know, kids like you, who come from these establishment backgrounds as well as, you know, working-class kids, were suddenly like, well, fuck that, I'm not going to do that. Exactly. You know, so that was obviously very frightening to the establishment, wasn't it? Yes, it was. So so Bart had been sort of, you know, been banned uh, from from these shores for, for spreading... Yes. Uh, these revolutionary ideas. Yes. And, and Amanda went back with him, did she?
1: She went for a short time and then came back. So when she came back,
0: then you enlisted her to help you with She
1: these. gave me a room in her flat, which is very kind of her. We w- we were great friends and later on became lovers. And uh, she helped me trepan myself.
0: So there's a second attempt. Well, you fainted and had to be got to hospital, yes. right? Um, and then you got busted for weed, right? In the intervening times, yeah, but that's but, right. But, yes, but there was no stopping it. Was there? I mean, it was like no. no de- I was determined, determined to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So three, three failed attempts and a and spilt in chokey. <laughs> that wasn't, <I> wasn't going <laughs> to stop young Joey Mellon from drilling no, a hole in it. No his head. way,
1: nothing was. Still, and I said mm. to them in the hospital, "Why don't you just finish it for me, please?" Mm. And they said, "Well, you must not do that." I knew perfectly well that it was quite safe as long as you knew what to, how to do it. Mm. You know, you had to sterilize everything very
0: carefully, very careful, obviously. Yeah, you had to know what you were doing. Right? You had yeah, to right? know what you were doing. You did this third or fourth, whatever it was, attempt mm. And this time you With used an electric, electric drill. drill, yeah, right. And even though there was a sort of slightly comic moment part way through where the oh. actual the plug came out and you had to go down yeah. and ask your neighbour downstairs, yes, whilst you sort of <laughs> were spouting blood from your head. Well, no, I put a bandage. it put a bandage around yes. it, but to, it must have been a bit of shock for him when you knocked on the door. But he, he was seems, a very nice man. Yeah, but well, he seems to have taken it in his stride because yes. he came and fixed your drill for he you. He fixed
1: the drill. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> So you carried on,
0: you did it on your own. And this
1: time I wasn't on acid, so I actually really could notice that it... Was it a painful thing? It was a messy thing? No, not at all, because obviously, I mean, there's no sensation in the bone, Mm. but outside the bone there's skin, muscle and membrane. There's a membrane outside the skull and then there's muscle and there's the skin. So you had to cut through the skin, the muscle and the membrane and inject local anaesthetic, which I'd got from a doctor friend, um, in three layers to the skin, the muscle and the membrane. So, and once that was done, there was absolutely no sensation at all. And then the, to drill through the skull took, with the electrode drill, took no more than about a few minutes.
0: So you needed a mirror and a sort of steady yes. hand? Right. Yes. And you, and you knew where to do it. I mean, yes. You know, but Bart had worked all this out where to do yes, it. Yes. I life. mean,
1: you could do it anywhere along the median line mm. is the best thing because that's where the blood vessels mm. are the thinnest.
0: And how did you know deep to go or not to go?
1: Well, once you're through the skull, mm-hmm. it's very obvious because boom, mm. the drill okay. goes right through. Right. It, boom. And I mean, I knew with the electric drill I could hold it on my hand. Mm. Like this, mm. two thousand reds per minute. For a minute and it didn't even make a mark because it was so fine the mm. teeth was like almost like soda like um sandpaper.
0: so we're talking about a very small hole here i mean a very small yes so it was yeah. it was
1: about a fingernail a small mm. fingernail
0: size something like that so you'd succeeded i'm imagining that there was a sense of relief and achievement in the fact that you'd actually been able to do it yes right um but then also well, how was it <clears throat> you know you had to clean up
1: all the sort of Mm. mess and everything and I just waited to see what was happening and gradually I began to feel a certain lightness and this sort of slightly increased and after about three or four hours I was feeling really, phew this is really good, I wonder whether it will last the night, you know I woke up in the morning and I realized yes this has really done it I feel lighter. And I use light in the double sense of the word. Light, like electric light, the sunlight, but also the lightness of the lifting of the weight of gravity, which I I think that's what it is, because Barden always said gravity is the bring-down. There's only one thing to be afraid of, that's gravity. (laughs) It brings you down.
0: (laughs) Did you feel different and did it did it maintain and was there a sense yes, that it just, was there a sense that life was now going to be different
1: i mean yes but not sort of spectacularly mm. different just uh, i was just very very pleased mm. to finally have had this lift that's mm. what it is, is a lift and a slight in,
0: increase of energy and then amanda she wanted you she to, do to, to do it she didn't want to do it and
1: she decided to film it mm. well i mean i did took the filming but um and she, but she made a film of herself doing mm. it, which is, it was called Heartbeat in the Brain. It's only a little 15 minute film, which I did rather a good soundtrack to. <laughs> <with> Sonny Rollins. <laughs> is right? Doing the, during the drilling, and, and a bit of um, Mozart and a bit of that swallow. Got she, it. by the way, had been in America while I was doing it. Mm-hmm. And when she came back, she saw the difference in me and, that's what
0: really made her decide she must do it. She did it and decided to film it. I mean, what was behind that decision? Not only to actually well, do it, I think it, we
1: wanted to, f- to, to publicise it. it. You know, mm. to to get publicity for it. And she thought a film would be the best thing, which I think it probably was. And I mean, anyone who's seen it was quite—you can't avoid being impressed by it. And well, we she set she set
0: it up very carefully, didn't she? She looks great. She, yes, she's, its all very. Carefully done and yes. with the bandages and when she was done, how do you think it changed her or how did it affect her?
1: I mean you'd really have to ask her that, but um I think I mean the thing is she loved taking acid like I did. So we were always getting high. But I think she saw the same thing as me. She felt the difference that it made. And she was very happy to have done it.
0: Well, so happy in fact that she then ran for parliament yes to try and become an MP. Based on, I don't think
1: she was fully expecting to get elected,
0: <laughs> but she did have a campaign poster which I've seen, which is yeah, trepanation on the NHS. Yes, <laughs> some idea, and got some votes actually. I think she trepanation got, for the national health for the national health, yes. right. I love it, right. So she yes. got more votes than I think, um, Enoch she Powell got did in not- Nottingham 47, so.
1: I think it was mm. the first time, and I think the second time was 131. So if we sort of extrapolated mm. from that one, might. After fifty years.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You did both of you and other people, Mm. you took it very seriously. I mean it was Mm. it was it was you meant you meant it, didn't you? It was something that you'd done and you saw it genuinely as a thing that could transform society, be part of this change.
1: Yes. Very important part of that is the second part of Bart's discoveries, which is the ego mechanism. When the skull seals and the blood is lost to the brain the parts that would suffer most would be those furthest away from the heart which is including the speech system but because we we are a thinking animal and thinking is essential for our survival we need to keep (coughs) the speech system centers functioning all the time in our waking life so this mechanism has evolved the way it works is that you talk a word the listening center recognizes the word the meaning of the word and the recognition of the meaning of the word is a trigger for the reflex action of more blood to go to the talking center and that's what bart discovered was that's how it works
0: so he links thinking and the blood supply basically yes
1: what bart called this mechanism was the ego mm. so for your identity you need to be thinking and people build up a sense of identity which includes their beliefs and systems and you know, their Christian or a Muslim or a... Beatnik. Beatnik, yes, exactly. Any sort of isms (laughs) there are that people adhere to um, become extremely important and indeed so important that almost all the wars Mm. and persecutions and so on in the past Mm. have been people defending their egos Mm. against other people's different meanings they've given them, and so there's this sort of madness going on all the time it's completely unnecessary I mean
0: it's all the ego so for you guys this was a liberation from ego yes right so so it, it had, had that effect on you as well as the sense of lightness. And then you wanted to pass that on to other people, so hence yes. Amanda running for Parliament. And then you basically, you, you guys, you became, you know, you were partners, you were living together, you had a gallery, mm. you know, you were living the mm. kind of countercultural life. Yes. You? What did your family make of this? Because you became known, even then, around London as the guy yeah. who tried to panned himself.
1: I mean, my mother was completely sort of. She just couldn't take it at all. I said, Why don't you take a trip and you'll see?
0: She didn't go there.
1: No, she didn't go there. She disinherited me and mm. uh, that was her problem. It wasn't What happened to Bart? Well, he um, went back to Holland and he got a job in the Tropical Museum where he could study. He studied the tar and he lived in a very poor part of town. He had a wife and two children. And the wife split from him, and uh, but decided that people had to study his work, and if they didn't, he wouldn't meet them. And this was idiotic, actually, because he was a very charismatic person, and if he hadn't had that policy... Because he'd, he'd said to me, I remember earlier, he said, um, nobody can see me unless they study my work and do their homework, which is to copy out all my things for ten times. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's completely mad.
0: A bit demanding. So what yeah. happened to him? I mean, he
1: drank himself to death. Right. He knew how to do it. I mean, he knew. He right. was a complete master of the science of medicine and biology. He was amazing. He was a hmm. genius.
0: You know? It's quite tragic, isn't it? Because it's not but alone. But tragic.
1: Well, he, he, he had an absolute love and affinity with animals of all kinds a bit like francis of assisi or something mm. i mean he he had he collected lizards and he used to go on his holidays um hitchhiking all around europe catching snakes and lizards he had an enormous room full of something like 200 of different types of reptiles and
0: including a crocodile you- okay that's not the sort of place i would want to go over to take an acid. And There's no way I'm going into a room with a crocodile in it.
1: The neighbours got really because
0: sh- he he
1: put a sort of um, branch of a tree out of his window, and the crocodile used to go and
0: sun itself. The neighbours complained. He had to give it to the zoo. You and Amanda, were, you know, together for a long time. You had kids mm. together, and then you know you you parted, and then mm. your 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 wife now. I mean, who you met, mm. um, and you know she wandered you to Trapana? Well, she a friend of
1: hers did it. Mm. I I told him, I said mm. I wouldn't do it. Mm. I said it wasn't my job to mm. Trapan people, it was mm. just to inform them. Because mm. I didn't want to get labelled as the Trapana. No, of course. Yeah. You know, and yeah. It would be dangerous and mm. I don't like danger. Mm. Well, I mean, you know.
0: No, I mean you don't want to take. I know you've been very clear about. It, you do not yeah. recommend people to be trim-panned, and it's, you're not suggesting that they should. I'm not, it's just, no, I'm
1: not. It's just I'm suggesting this should be done in the national health. Mm. And what's ridiculous is that when you think of it, this um, what do they call it? Cosmetic surgery. Mm. They do. So um, what was
0: it, what was it like for your wife when she had it done afterwards? Did she have a similar experience to you? This lightening? Yes. Enlightening and, yes yeah. Absolutely. She I mean, she was obviously impressed by what it, you know your and your energy and your yes. your sort of your being and enough to want to do it for herself and so yes. and so, did that bring you closer together than she did it as well?
1: Well I mean I was in love with her and mm. uh, yes I mean it did mm. we, we are very close we mm. have been very close always
0: Joey we are at the end I've just got a couple of more questions for you it was a long time ago that you mm-hmm. did it 50 years, isn't it? Over oh, 50 yeah. years. I don't know whether the hole is sealed up against No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't seal up. Right? That's the
1: beauty of holes mm-hmm. in the skull. Right.
0: Anywhere well, else they seal, but not in the skull. Right. So it's still there, and do you feel that it's still having an effect? Or yes. F- yeah, you do. You can, still yes. f- you can still feel it. Do you still take acid? Yes. Yeah. In, do you microdose, or do you take sort of heroic doses? or?
1: I, I do a bit of both. hmm
0: You started off, you said this is the story of how I came to drill a hole in my head to get permanently high. Yes. Did it happen? Yes. Joey, thanks very much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture.
1: (laughs) Thank you, I enjoyed it.
0: The delightful Joey Mellon. As Joey said, don't do this at home. I'm not sure Joey's hope that it will be available on the NHS will come to pass in the near future. But it is true that there is a great interest, thankfully, and a great likelihood that some psychedelic drugs will be legalised in the near future. I, at least, am very strongly in favour of that. I should just say that I could see a mark, if not a hole, on Joey's head. But apparently, that was from one of the botched attempts, not the successful one. You can read more about Joey's exploits in his wonderful book, Borehole. Available from Strange Attractor Press. Come and join us at the Bureau of Lost Culture. If you go to bureauoflostculture.com, as well as been able to enjoy all our previous episodes, you can sign up for our mailing list to get very special Bureau of Culture treats. And if you like, you can help support us in our wild endeavours. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time with more tales from the other side. This episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture was sponsored by the artist known as The Real Tuesday World, www.tuesdayworld.com. Here they are with the track Miles from the album Tape Dust Memories.